0: A reading from the Gospel according to Matthew. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, have your gift there before the altar and go first, be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him. Or your accuser may hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church through Scripture. Thanks be to God.
1: I invite you to come with me into a moment of prayer. God, your Holy Spirit has a way of leading us toward those who are suffering, perhaps because of the way in which your own heart breaks so deeply over the suffering of your children. Even as we gather together in this virtual space for worship It is impossible for us not to think about our siblings in those portions of Turkey and Syria who are experiencing the devastation in the aftermath of Monday's earthquake. So much death, God, so much anguish, so much pain. It is beyond what we can fathom. And so we cry out to you in these moments. We cry out largely because we do not know what else to do. God, would you remind the people of Turkey and Syria and would you remind us that your divine tears are commingling with ours, even in this moment? Would you remind them and would you remind us that you care far more about our suffering than we do simply because you love us with such intimacy and such care? And God, would you please through the relief efforts that are mobilizing and through the redemptive work of your Holy Spirit, would you please make your way into the nooks and crannies of the devastation of that portion of the world and bring life out of death. Bring healing in the midst of brokenness. Bring hope in the midst of despair. And now, God, either through me or in spite of me, speak your word and help us to listen. For we ask it in the name of Jesus, who weeps and who also gives new life. Amen. In his novel, Dante's Journey, author J.C. Marino writes these words. The small individual commands the letter of the law. The great individual serves its spirit. Decades earlier, in his commencement address on the campus of Harvard University in 1978, the Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn spoke these words, a society which is based on the letter of the law and never reaches any higher is taking very scarce advantage of the high range of human possibilities. The letter of the law, Solzhenitsyn said, is too cold and too formal to have a beneficial influence on society. And even earlier than that, in the mid 1800s, one of the most passionate arguments being promulgated against women's suffrage was that the United States Constitution contained only male pronouns in its text. For those of you who do not think that pronouns are important, In response to that absurd argument, Susan B. Anthony said this during a speech that she offered in Rochester, New York in 1873. Listen to these words. It is said that the use of masculine pronouns, he, his, and him in the constitution and its laws is proof that only men were meant to be included in their provisions. If you insist on this version of the letter of the law, we shall insist that you be consistent and exempt women from taxation and from the penalties of the violation of the laws since there is no she or her or hers in the tax laws. And this is equally true of all the criminal laws. Which is to say, if you're going to deny us the right to vote based upon the absence of our pronouns in the text, then please don't expect us to abide by any of the segments of the Constitution since our pronouns don't exist there either. Susan B. Anthony's point is beautifully clear. When one fixates on the letter of the law of even the United States Constitution, one runs the risk of missing the far greater territory that exists beneath and beyond its text. In the continuing human pursuit of a comprehensively moral framework, you see, there has always been what might be described as the letter of the law. And the letter of the law is important. The letter of the law, after all, is often what provides clarity and specificity when it comes to a society's boundaries and ethical standards. But not to be forgotten is that there also exists in our moral journey what might be described as the spirit of the law. A deeper and wider moral sensibility out of which particular laws emerge and to which particular laws bear steady witness. Case in point, murder can be deemed illegal by the letter of the law only because of the valuing of a deeper spirit of mutual protection and mutual respect and mutual civility. And it's that deeper spirit that enables one to recognize the act of murder as something wholly unacceptable. The letter of the law, you see, holds meaning only because of the spirit of the law that undergirds it. I've come to believe that one of the great moral struggles of our age, and I suspect of every age, is the struggle of becoming so thoroughly fixated on the letter of the law, that one's relationship with the spirit of the law becomes woefully and dangerously distorted. I ask you to think with me for just a few moments about some of the different ways in which that is happening in our culture. Freedom of speech, for example, is a vitally important principle in our country, one that is protected by the letter of the law, as it should be. However, you know as well as I do that one, when one utilizes that freedom of speech to promulgate, to promulgate ideas that are hurtful or dehumanizing to another segment of the population, then the protection of freedom, which is the spirit of that law, takes a significant hit. A more complex example. In this country, it is expected that people will stand in reverence for the American national anthem. That is the unwritten letter of the law, established over the decades to honor what is best about our country's legacy and history. But when one becomes so fixated on that letter of the law, one runs the risk of losing the kind of moral nuance that, will, that would enable one to look upon the act of kneeling during the national anthem, not as an un-American offense, but as a thoroughly American protest of those areas of our country in which our country is not realizing the integrity that the national anthem envisions. An insistence upon the letter of the law in that case leads to a misplaced resentment of the law's deeper spirit. In that portion of Christianity called the United Methodist Church, this letter of the law, spirit of the law dynamic is uh, heartbre- heartbreakingly evident, especially as it relates to the full inclusion of LGBTQIA persons. And by the way, as I begin to touch upon this subject matter, it is not at all lost on me that for some of you that are experiencing this worship, this is not simply a matter of denominational news or conversation. It is rather a matter that assaults your very personhood your very identity and if you're somebody experiencing this worship who is carrying a great deal of woundedness because of these matters or perhaps a great deal of anger or grief or anguish it's important to me that you understand that i am carrying all of that along with you as is this church you are not carrying it alone but beyond carrying the woundedness and the anguish you also need to understand about me that I carry a sense of urgency about being the best ally, the best advocate, the best senior pastor I can be to a portion of humanity that the church, or to which the church has caused a great deal of harm. And one more thing I carry even into this moment of preaching a sense of urgency about doing everything that I can to help this church to expand and intensify its ministry with the LGBTQIA community. We will talk more about that in the weeks and months ahead. But I mention all of that because even as we gather here for worship, hundreds of United Methodist churches within the Connection Are making the decision to disaffiliate from the United Methodist Church primarily because, primarily because of what they interpret to be the letter of the law of Scripture and the United Methodist Book of Discipline concerning human sexuality. And in the midst of that kind of a denominational struggle, I am so grateful for churches like Christ Church New York City who are willing to dare to move beneath that interpretation of the letter of the law in order to find a Christ-shaped love, a Christ-shaped compassion, a Christ-shaped holiness that would inspire us to subordinate that letter of the law to a deeper spirit of welcome and inclusion, the kind of spirit that we believe bears more faithful witness to the gracious and welcoming heart of the God we worship. Do you understand the importance of what it is that I'm putting before you? The relationship that we establish with the letter of the law and the spirit of the law can impact the trajectory of a life and it can certainly impact the trajectory of a church's ministry. And all of this is on my heart, all of this is on my mind because as we open the pages of scripture today, we find Jesus in what has come to be called his Sermon on the Mount, preaching to a group of people who were presumably faithful presumably well taught and in the course of this Sermon on the Mount Jesus very intentionally draws their attention to two of the Ten Commandments you have heard it said Jesus proclaims you have heard it said you shall not kill and I can imagine the well-trained ears of the people in that space perking up first with recognition and then perhaps a little bit of pride. Oh yes, Jesus, we know what you're referencing. That's one of the commandments that Yahweh gave to us. You shall not murder. You shall not murder, we know that commandment. And in fact, Jesus, in case you're interested, you're speaking to people who have obeyed that commandment to the letter of the law. In fact, I'm pretty certain that nobody in this community has ever committed murder. So if you want to go ahead and move on to your next sermonic point, feel free to do that. We have this one covered. Imagine their astonishment when Jesus preached what he preached next. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, Jesus continues, I say to you that if you are angry with a sister or brother, or if you are quick to insult, you are liable to the hell of fire. Uh, Excuse me, Jesus. I thought we were talking about the letter of the law here. I thought we were talking about literal murder. Can we go back to the letter of the law? We're much more comfortable there. It's a moment of scripture in which Jesus invites his hearers, past and present, to travel with him beneath the law's letter and into its deeper spirit, to travel with him beneath well-managed behavior and into a transformed heart, the kind of heart that guards against both murder and hatred, both physical violence but also relational antipathy. In fact, Jesus goes on to preach, if you are sitting in a worship experience, as important as that is, if you're sitting in a worship experience and it occurs to you that you are alienated from somebody in your life, leave the altar of God, go and do what you can do to be reconciled to that person from whom you are alienated, then come back to worship. The point being, the spirit of the law must be embraced and lived before the letter of the law can hold its greatest significance. And as if to put an exclamation point on what it is that he is communicating, Jesus moves into even more complicated subject matter, adultery. You have heard it said, Jesus preaches. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. And again, keeping in mind that the folks who are listening to Jesus are probably still recovering from his first point I can imagine their ears once again perking up and maybe speaking into that moment, "Uh, Jesus, yes, we understand the commandment you're referencing. It's one of the commandments that Yahweh gave to Moses and that Moses gave to us. And I want you to know, Jesus, that you're speaking to people who, uh, to the best of my knowledge, have never committed uh, or experienced an extramarital affair. So again, I, I think we've cared well for that commandment, haven't we? Well, not quite, Jesus said. Because I say to you that if you have looked with lust at another person, then you've already committed a form of adultery in your heart. And again, can't you picture the reaction of the people who were so excited believing that they had fulfilled the letter of the law faithfully? I can imagine them saying, Now what, Jesus? Are you moving into the rhythm? of our thoughts? Are you saying that even the way we reflect upon things, the way we think about things, the way we look at people, you're telling us that even that has something to do with our discipleship, our following you? It's a moment in which Jesus boldly steps into what may very well have been the protected territory of the people's self-righteousness and sense of moral superiority, all for the purpose of helping them to understand something that the letter of the law is not the end of the journey, but the beginning. The letter of the law is a doorway to a deeper moral spirit, a wider spiritual ground. It's good that you're not committing murder, Jesus essentially says to his hearers and to us. It's good that you're not committing adultery. Keep that up, but don't become so impressed with your satisfaction of the letter of those laws that you forget to surrender the hatred that is hardening your heart. You forget to surrender the objectifying lustfulness that is distorting all of your relationships. I have a clergy colleague with whose permission I share this, who initiated an email conversation with me recently about her troubled relationship with social media. And she described the situation this way. Over a decade ago, I approached social media, she wrote, with great excitement. I looked upon it as this new mission field. And for 10 years, I've treated it as such. I've posted my theological reflections. I've posted my biblical interpretations. I've initiated spiritual conversations with people and patted myself on my back, on the back for my ingenuity and my creativity. But over the last couple of years, she said something has gone horribly wrong. And with the help of, of a spiritual director, she wrote, with the help of a spiritual director, I've been able to discern for, that for the last two years, I've been nurturing a spirit, of, a spirit of authentic antipathy toward the very people with whom I share social media space. And I asked her to tell me more about that antipathy, and this is how she described it. Let me put it this way, she wrote. Have you ever noticed that it's a whole lot easier loving people when you don't know what all their opinions are. And I smiled as I read that and I replied, yeah, absolutely, I get it. Well, she wrote back, that's causing me all kinds of problems because on the one hand, she said, I feel like I'm fulfilling my ministerial responsibilities by connecting with people on Facebook and Twitter and social media. But on the other hand, I'm secretly despising the very people with whom I'm trying to connect. Translation, I have fulfilled the letter of the law related to my vocation. I'm caring for my responsibilities dutifully, but I've allowed my heart to become hardened to the deeper spirit of love that undergirds the letter of the law. And I asked her in the context of this email exchange if she had any idea of what she were going to do And her response was incredible. I'm still figuring that out, she wrote. But I'll tell you this much, I'm not going to post or tweet anything publicly before pausing to pay attention to what I'm holding in the secret spaces of my unfinished heart. Listen to that. I'm not going to post or tweet anything publicly before first pausing to pay attention to what I'm holding in the secret places of my unfinished heart. You have heard it said, Jesus preached, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, pay attention to the secret places of your unfinished heart and what you are holding there. And if you find in those secret places things like hatred, things like contempt, things like antipathy, things like a dehumanizing and objectifying lustfulness, then it may be that in the hyperactivity of the daily pilgrimage, you've allowed yourself to be pulled out of alignment with the impulses of the one who created you. And that brings me to this very personal question when you take a look beneath all the letters of the law that you were required to honor in your daily life, what do you find in the secret places of your unfinished heart, those places to which only you and God have access? I will leave you with that question to ponder and I invite you to ponder it individually in solitude. I invite you to ponder it communally with people you trust. Most of all, I invite invite you to ponder it prayerfully so that every portion of your life, the external portion and the internal portion, might become a doxology, a song of praise to the God who holds a beautiful authority over both the letter of the law and its spirit. To this God be the glory. Amen.